With so many different potential approaches for helping your relationship, how do you make sense of them all together? John and Julie Gottman, Sue Johnson, Esther Perel, David Schnarch, Dan Tatkin, Ellen Bader, Peter Pearson, Terry Reel. They're all describing different ways of getting the same thing, a loving, thriving, passionate relationship. Today, we're going to tackle how it all fits together so you're better prepared to steer your own relationship. As always, I want to take a quick moment to thank you for getting the word out about Relationship Alive. Letting people know, either in person or on social media, helps ensure that when the people close to you need help with their relationships, they'll know exactly where to find it. And Relationship Alive is my offering to you so that you can have the most successful relationship possible and find deep healing and growth in your life. If you're finding the show to be helpful, please consider a donation to ensure that we can continue. Every little bit helps to keep the wheels turning here at Relationship Alive headquarters. So to choose something that feels right for you, visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, special gratitude goes out to Anita, Patrick, Anne, Bin, Angie, and Cynthia. Thank you so much for your generous support of Relationship Alive. Now, this episode is going to be a really long one, so I'm going to keep the rest here short and sweet. First, I've created a relationship communication guide with my top three relationship communication secrets to help you stay connected no matter how challenging the topic that you're communicating about. These secrets are among the best that I've distilled from my conversations here on Relationship Alive and my work with my clients, and they're free for you. To download the guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Second, you are invited to come see Relationship Alive live on June 6th here in Portland, Maine. We'll be featuring Terry Reel, author of The New Rules of Marriage, as well as musical guest Katie Matzel, who's a local fave here in the Portland area. And you will have the chance to have your questions answered. For more information, visit neilsatin.com slash tickets. And lastly, come join the Relationship Alive community on Facebook, where we've created a safe space to talk about all things relationship. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. And if you can hear it in my voice, I'm particularly excited for today's conversation. Of course, we've had so many different viewpoints represented here on Relationship Alive because there are so many roads that lead to Rome, the Rome of romance and romantic partnership and how we sustain loving, thriving, monogamous relationships. And... 
it's not always that one road works for any one person. And this has come up several times in the show, this question of, well, you know, so-and-so says their, their way is the way, and they sound so convincing when you're talking to them, Neil. So what do I do when it doesn't work? And this happens sometimes. So if you've tuned in for a while, then you know that the reason that I have all these different voices on the show is because I really believe strongly that it's whatever works that's important. Um, and I suppose for myself, I might put some boundaries around that, you know, what I'd be comfortable with or where I'd feel a little edgy or stretching. But for the most part, I think that it's up to you to really get informed about what's possible and then make choices that really align with you or maybe stretch you in a direction that feels like a light way to be stretched. At the same time, they all form part of this big puzzle that makes sense. And so I wanted to have a conversation today about how we integrate as much as possible the way that we think about all of these different me methodologies so you can see how they all fit together. They, are, they don't exclude each other for the most part. They actually all find uh, a place in the, in the big picture of how we make relationships what we want them to be. And as much as some of the people on my show might want you to think otherwise, this is my personal belief. And so to have this conversation, I've invited uh, one of my favorite guests to have here on the show, who also happens to be someone who's very good at integrating all these different approaches. His name is Keith Witt. He has been here before to talk about his uh, books, Loving Completely, Shadow Light, um, The Attuned Family, and he is an integral psychologist, among other things. And so the integral perspective, I think, will help us understand how all of these different pieces fit together in a way that actually does make a coherent whole. It makes sense. So, Keith, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. I am always happy to be on your show, and it's one of the pleasures of my life, our conversations. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, the, the feeling is mutual. Um, I do want to say, before we dive in deep, that we'll have a transcript of this episode. If you're interested in downloading it, you may want to read it a few times. You can visit neilsatin.com slash integrate because we're going to be integrating everything today. Or as always, you can text the word passion to the number 33444, follow the instructions, and you'll be able to download uh, the transcript to today's episode. So Keith, let's start with maybe where you orient in terms of this conversation. And before we got started, you were talking about this sense of like, uh, as we as we talk about all these different schools of thought, we're really talking about the founders of of modern relationship theory. And so where do you put yourself and and how do you how do you make sense of of where you are in this conversation about how we're tying all of these things together? Um, well, first of all, being a founder is a peculiar thing. Uh, um, there's a, I've, I've developed, uh, various systems, all of them interrelated generally under the integral umbrella and integral has warped me greatly. <laughs> the reason why integral has warped me greatly is integral is a meta theory, not a theory. 
And so I had actually generated systems and written some books about systems before I encountered Integral. But then Integral, looking at the world through the objective and the subjective, the individual and the collective, looking at the world through types of people, states of consciousness, through people being at different developmental levels, including therapists, I realized that when you put any system into that, including the systems I developed, it expanded. And it made me just fascinated with the, the commonalities that effective systems, particularly of relationships and of love, because I think everything's relationships, is. And so one of the things that's different from me and other founders is that even though I've, if you look at my eight books, there's essentially uh, seven different systems interrelated of doing psychotherapy and of doing a couple's work. I'm not particularly invested in any of them. Um, those systems are useful. They're coherent. Um, they have a lot of technical and theoretical uh, um, interconnections with everybody else and with the research. But, you know, I agree with exactly what you said. Ultimately, when a couple or an individual wants to love better, they come and it's the goodness of fit with the therapist and it's how effectively they move forward. And that's there's an alchemical um, experience that happens with that that can only be described in the inner subjectivity of the session. And meta research on psychotherapy has shown this again and again. And one of my favorite um, uh, meta uh, analyses, which they took zero, billions, of, you know, lots of studies and put them together, they found out a couple of very fascinating things. One, therapy helps people. Okay, that's good news for everybody. Good to know, but yeah. The, the second thing, that the variance of change was explained by 40% in this study, in this meta-analysis, 40% of the variance of change was client variables. You know, how resilient they were, what kind of social networks they had, you know, what kind of resources they had. 30% of the variance of positive change was the relationship. How, what, what kind of, what was the solidity of the intersubjectivity, intersubjectivity of the alliance between the clients and the therapist? 15% was placebo effect. If you go to somebody, give them a bunch of money and they expect to change, you know, you're going to change. <laughs> In fact, that's, that's something that has completely uh, uh, confused the field when it comes to the, the whole psychotropic thing probably uh, 30 or 40% of, of the effect of most antidepressants is placebo effect. Uh, 8 to 12% is probably the drug. Okay, so 15% placebo effect. 15% method of treatment. Okay, well, method of treatment, 15% is significant. You know, in poker, 7% is skill, and the, the good poker player always wins. But that, seven, that 15% um, isn't as big as the client variables, and it isn't as big as that 30% of the alliance. And so I'm aware of that, and, and so I hold my systems lightly, even though I love them. And so I look at the other systems, and I look at my relationships with the other systems, and um, I get a lot out of all of them. Um, but also I noticed that as we move through the fields, our own little blind spots kind of tend to affect um, how we absorb systems, how we enact systems, and how we um, uh, integrate them. And I find that interesting because every time I find a blind spot, that's an opportunity to wake up. And this is where our conversation went when we were talking about this. So how do they fit together? Uh, well, as it turns out, even though they look very different from the outside, most of them fit together quite well in terms of the constructs that the various therapists bring to bear with couples, 
and, and individuals for that matter, and what they have to do in a session to help people move forward. So that's that's pretty much it. I mean, my loving completely approach is approach that I love a lot, and you can check it out in my book, Loving Completely, and my book, Waking Up, that I was one of the was the first book that I wrote after I, I had my integral awakening. Is, is one of the first texts on integrally informed psychotherapy, and it has, it has sections in, in, in it around integrally informed sex therapy and marriage counseling. Um, and I'm quite proud of that, and I think that works a lot. But are those more effective than um, Gottman's approach or Snarch's approach or Perel's approach or Tatkin's approach? I don't think so. I think pretty much you have a good therapist who's enacting a system and is attuned to their clients. Um, they're going to do pretty well. And this goes for me all the way back to my doctoral research. I was always interested in this. And so my doctoral research was I took three different kinds of systems and researched them in terms of of how much they enhance the health of clients. Um, Talking plus touching, talking without touching, and touching without talking. And I found that people got better equally, which led me to conclude that in psychotherapy, people have a natural healing style. And what you want to do is you want to identify it and enhance it and let it and help it grow as you grow throughout a lifetime. And I think that's probably the best way to go as a psychotherapist and as a marriage counselor. And certainly when I train people and supervise people, that's my perspective. What's your natural healing style? How can we help you expand that um, and grow within that natural healing style? And that natural healing style has to involve not just your style expanding, but you expanding. If we don't grow as individuals, we are limited as as clinicians. Yeah, that's – I really appreciate your saying that and it's making me think about – that problem of, you know, when someone comes to me and says, I tried, you know, I found an EFT therapist and that didn't work, or I found a Gottman therapist and that didn't work. I wonder sometimes if that might be because the particular therapist isn't necessarily 100% aligned in terms of their healing style, which you just mentioned, with what they, with the system that they've learned. It may be that they believe 150% in the effectiveness of that system, but if it doesn't tap into their own natural alignment and integrity and how they create resonance with their clients, then I could see it falling flat at times. Oh, yeah. You know, before um, probably 2000, you know, I've been I've been doing this for since I start first started studying therapy in 1965. I mean, I've been studying <laughs> a bazillion systems, and so for me, until I was around 50, every time I discovered a new system, I go, "Ah, oh, damn!" Okay, because I knew that I was going to get disintegrated. I was going to learn this system, and it would gonna it was going to disrupt my understanding of the psychotherapeuty universe, I would have to climb into this system and enact it until I could, I could actually enact the system naturally. I could answer questions from the system. And I knew that it would reorganize my understanding of the universe. And it was a lot of work. So every time I found a, a, system, a good system, I go, oh, Jesus, not another one. And then, <laughs> and then I would study it and I would, I would sometimes for years. And it, would, it was always difficult in the beginning because it would destabilize. And, and that's very much how development goes on any developmental line. 
you expand into uh, the current worldview and something comes and causes that worldview to not quite be enough. And so the old one disintegrates and you go through that period of disintegration before you reintegrate into a more complex system. And, you know, I, I kept hoping that it would be the end of it. You know, I'd finally get a system that was so great that I wouldn't have to have to go that, through that experience. And then after I was 50 and, and studied integral and, and wrote about integral, I realized that I was enjoying the process now. That when someone get, came up with a new idea like EMDR, that, that actually was – EMDR is, is wonderful in certain situations dealing with trauma. And so that was great. When as soon as I identified it as a great system, I saw research that was that persuaded me. I dived in, and I had a lot of fun learning and enacting EMDR until I could bring it into my repertoire of of theoretical and practical understanding. Now, what did that reflect? That reflected my consciousness changing. You know, I shifted from being uh, more uh, egocentric in my understanding to being more open. So my unconscious was actually aware. Keith, there will be great systems that will happen. And when they, when they, they arrive, they'll help you grow and be a better therapist. They're wonderful. And so my subjective reaction to them shifted from, oh, no, to, oh, boy. And this is how you notice that you grow. You don't notice that you grow particularly because you have a new idea. You notice that you grow because you have a different natural reaction to something that you had a, a different reaction to before. And this is it, and it's very difficult to notice a shift in worldviews from the inside. It's, more, it's, it's easier for other people to give you feedback about it until you get to a certain level of development in, in integral. We call that the second tier. And then it's just easier to see that kind of stuff. And so that's been my experience with this over the decades. That's my current experience with it. Great. Yeah. And just to give uh, you listening a full sense of like what I'm bringing to this conversation, I mentioned in the introduction that a lot of this is about you finding tools that work for you. I also have another bias that comes from my position of being able to talk to so many of the of the founders of of relationship theories um which is and it it comes from my upbringing i think which is this kind of like can't we all just get along mentality like like in an ideal world i'd be having this conversation keith you would probably still be there um and we would have everyone on a, on a stage as a panel, but the express purpose of that conversation would be like, let's figure out how we can all work together. And my understanding is that that's been challenging um, in in the field to to bring everyone together like that. But that's another uh, thing that I my own agenda that I bring to this conversation is I want everyone to to get along and and to commit to kind of the overall betterment of. Um, of, of how effective we can be um, in our lives or as, as therapists or coaches or people who help others. It's really important to me. Well, amen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and some other things that you were mentioning made me think immediately of John Gottman. And I can't remember if he mentioned this actually in our first interview, if, if it was part of what I recorded or if it was just part of my conversation with him. But um, he talks about how important it is for him to know when he's wrong. 
you know, he's he keeps a very detailed record of all the ideas that he's ever had. And I I think he might have said that he's wrong more than half the time. Yes, um, he says that more yeah. than half of his hypotheses have been proved false. Right. <laughs> right. And so for him, this is one of the things that he stakes his claim around is that he's distilled um, a body of work that statistically has been shown to work more than 50% of the time. I think, in fact, it's like 86 or something percent of the time. Um, and, and that being said, he's also, what I love about that statement is one, his embrace of the willingness to be wrong, which is, um, so important at any level of relationship, relationship to an idea, relationship to your spouse. Um, so I really appreciate that. And also, um, it seems to be his major critique of uh, people who would use other systems that maybe haven't been uh, empirically proven to be effective because what if you put it under scientific scrutiny and found that it only worked 10% of the time, like your best placebo on it, you know, uh, without, or sorry, your best drug without the placebo effect. Um, so that's where it gets confusing for people, I think, because they're like, well, if my, um, if my local shaman hasn't undergone scientific study, what do I do with the fact that it, it's actually been really helpful for me um, versus going to my Gottman certified therapist? Keith, we need to take just a quick break to talk about this week's sponsors. There are two of them, and they each have a unique offering for you. The first is StoryWorth.com, who give you a really innovative way to connect with your family over time and distance to uncover the meaningful stories that have helped make your loved ones who they are and to create a sweet keepsake that you'll treasure for years to come. Each week for a year, StoryWorth emails your chosen loved one a prompt to help them think about their life and experience in unique ways. All they have to do is reply to the email and their replies will be shared with whomever you choose. And in the end, they're all bound into a high quality hardcover book. I'm going to be gifting a StoryWorth subscription to my mother for Mother's Day. Not only am I really psyched to find out more about her journey and the parts of her life that I don't necessarily know about, I'm also really excited to have something in a, in a book, to have all of this collected in a way that my kids can read or my nephews or my children's children or my children's children's children, assuming that everyone still knows how to read and what to do with a book when that comes to pass. You get the point. I'm really curious to see what we all discover about my mom. And StoryWorth has a great offer for you. For $20 off, visit storyworth.com slash alive when you subscribe. That's storyworth, W-O-R-T-H dot com for $20 off. I'm also excited to tell you about our other sponsor for Relationship Alive today, who has a unique date night offer for you, especially if you're close to a major metropolitan area. Their name is Sweet Hop, 
And what they offer is, I think, really cool. At venues and arenas across the country, games and concerts take place, and sadly, often the luxury suites sit empty or half full because they're simply not made as available to the general public as regular general admission seating. So if you've ever wondered what it might be like to take in a concert or a game from one of those luxury boxes, Sweet Hop is for you. They allow the owners of those luxury boxes to sell tickets to you so that you can have that experience. Luxury suites and VIP box seats are available in groups of two to eight seats, so it's perfect for a date night or a night out with a group of friends, and they usually include access to luxury clubs, exclusive bathrooms, which can be really important at these things, and VIP entrances to the venue. These are great seats for a show, and along with having plenty of space and no sweaty, drunk people landing on top of you, at least none who are unknown to you, there are also generally fabulous food and beverage options that can help turn a regular event into a luxury experience. On the Sweet Hop website, it's super easy to browse the list of events or games in your area or to simply pull up a venue and see everything that's available. So if you're looking for an extra special date night that your partner definitely won't forget, check out Sweet Hop. Visit www.sweethop.com slash date night to find an amphitheater or show near you. That's S-U-I-T-E hop.com slash date night. And thank you so much, StoryWorth and Sweet Hop, for sponsoring this episode of Relationship Alive. And now back to our conversation with Keith Witt. John Gottman is the only founder that I know of whose uh, psychotherapeutic approach and uh, theoretical approach literally arose out of his research. That's not true for any of the rest of us. Everybody else was doing stuff that, that worked really well for them in certain situations. And they saw how things fit together. And then they fitted it together with other stuff that they found out and created a structure. Um, now, that's not, a, that's not a bad thing. That's how theories historically have arisen, in my opinion, um, except for, say, physics. And John Gottman started out as a mathematician. And, you know, I went to a three-day workshop with him and Julie. And at the very end, I went up to him. I said, you know, John, I've done a lot of this stuff, okay? And your system has the most amount of good stuff and the least amount of bullshit than any other system that I've seen. <laughs> And, you know, he laughed because he got it. Um, you know, one, another thing that endeared me to him, and I got to say, I am biased towards John Goblin. I love that guy. I think he and Julie are great. Um, you know, in, in a conference where everybody's talking about how their system is the best, he went up on stage and says, you know, I think about my treatment's failures. They, they, and, you know, I thought, God, John, thank you. I think about my treatment failures, too. What the fuck? What could I do different? What's the new stuff? And he is a researcher. Now, I use a lot of his research to validate my approach. You know, I've changed things that I've done in response to some of his research. Um, I've changed some of my understandings in response to some of his research. Why? He's just the best and most comprehensive couples researcher around. In terms of my approach, 
almost every psychotherapist and all couples counselors, to a certain extent, do psychoeducation. You're basically teaching people about themselves and about how relationships work. The nice thing about Gottman's approach is that he didn't really, in most of his work, he didn't really have confirmation bias. Okay, Confirmation bias is what most uh, founders bring to their research if they do research. Okay, well, if you're doing research to show that your system is great, that's, that's confirmation bias. Now, human beings, when they develop, when they develop from fundamentalist, which is, you know, I'm going to enact the EFT system or the crucible system exactly how it's supposed to be, and I'm not going to really think about, about whether it's working or not. That's, that's kind of a fundamentalist system. I'm going with the structure, but, but because it's the structure. When you go to a more rational system, a rational system is, well, I want to cross-validate things and see how they work, and if they work better, I'll shift into a new, new system. In between that conformist and that rational system, there's an in-between stage. Suzanne Cook-Gruder and uh, Bina Sharma, who study developmental stages, they call it the three-four stage because three is conformist and four is rational. They call it the three-four stage. In that stage, people experience themselves as open to input, but actually they have confirmation bias. They're looking for data that support their preconceived notions, and they and they very much resist change. You know, back in the 90s, I went to a David Snarch workshop. And so David Snarch was all about differentiation. You know, a concept he obviously lifted from Murray Bowen and never gives him any credit for, which pissed off Dan, uh, Dan Siegel enough in a conference that Dan Siegel called him out on it. You know, it was one of those little conference, you know, snafus that, that happened that fascinated everybody. So I went up to Snarch and I said, you know, there, I think there is a more fundamental cons construct than um, differentiation. He said, what? I said, I think it's health. He said, that's too broad. Now, maybe he's right. You know, maybe my orientation towards what's healthy and not healthy is a too broad concept. But his immediate reaction was dismissal. He didn't want to consider um, that there might be a more uh, fundamental organizing principle than his. Okay? There was confirmation bias. Okay? Now, you know, he's a good counterpoint to me, to John Gottman. John Gottman doesn't like people making assertions without doing research, but I don't care. I still love John Gottman. David Snarch spent minutes on stage during that workshop, you know, warning people to not use his stuff because it's all trademarked. And I found him arrogant, narcissistic, and he, to this day, irritating. Okay. Now, what is that? I mean, you know, both of them have their own critiques. Why do I find myself really liking John Gottman and, and irritated with Snarch? Even more importantly, um, whenever you get irritated with someone, there's a tendency to dismiss what's great about their system. And this is what's beautiful about Integral. Integral says, Everybody gets to be right. Nobody gets to be right all the time. And Snarch's concept of differentiation and holding on to yourself and the whole crucible approach to couples is a really good approach. Okay, that is very effective, with, particularly with some couples where they keep kind of trying to move out of the container. And you keep them in the container until something pops, and out of that pop comes something new. And sometimes that newness is a, is a new discovery of love for each other. Now, Esther Perel does a similar thing, but she's more of a practical romantic. I see Snarch and, um, and Susan Johnson as more practical, moralistic, in that they, they seem to literally have moral disgust for other people who disagree with them. <laughs> I go, okay, maybe, maybe that's what irritates me about them. Uh, you know, like Susan Johnson says, if you do your work, you have to be slow and soft. 
Okay, well, that works for her with couples. But you know, as people might have noticed so far in our conversation, I'm not a particularly slow and soft guy. Okay, so my natural healing style, sure, I can get really gentle with people. And I actually was critiqued by Gestalt therapists in the 70s by being too nice to my clients. You're too nice to your clients, Keith. I'm, like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> just, because, just because Fritz is an asshole doesn't mean I have to be an asshole when I do therapy. <laughs> um, and so, sorry, Susan, you know, slow, slow and soft is not my natural style. Okay, so now does that make me less effective than her with a couple? Probably with some couples. I don't know. Um, right. I, and I it would probably make you less effective if you were implementing her system. Yes, that's exactly right. And, it, and you know, when you learn a system, it's good to implement it. Now, in the, in the, even though I love John and Julie, John and Julie, when they talk about implementing their systems, they use a lot of their research tools. They give people like questionnaires and they give them cards and stuff and they have their structured things that they recommend people doing. I'm sorry. You know, I don't like doing that stuff. Um, <laughs> my clients don't like doing stuff like that. But even if my clients liked it, I don't like doing it. You know, if you go to a risk management workshop, they, they give you a five-page thing your clients are supposed to sign about all the horrible things that, you know, that they can report you for and that, you know, the therapy does and doesn't do. I'm sorry, I don't do a five-page thing, okay? Um, we're all, we all have our different styles. Now, that being said, I just love that guy. I love him. And, I, and every time he gets a new thing out, you know, I, I studied his last book from beginning to end several times and except for the math, um, just found it utterly fascinating. And I see him as a practical scientific guy. He is a true scientist. John Gottman will change an opinion on a, on, on a dime if you give him persuasive data. And that's just not true for many people. Um, yeah. Um, so since you've, you've brought up uh, David Schnarch, and unfortunately, he hasn't been on my show yet. So we haven't had the, the benefit of being able to hear from him directly. I still I, I reach out to him every so often, and I'm hoping that one of these days he will. That being said, it's funny, um, you know, I have my own bias when someone doesn't want to be on my show, <laughs> you know, I'm <laughs> yeah, like, you well, go. what's your problem? Um, <laughs> what you what you just mentioned about your experience with him, that seems in some respects to make sense, given that he's, you know, staked his claim on differentiation like that. That's, you know, that's where he's coming from. Differentiation being that sense of holding on to you and your sense of who you are, no matter what someone else is throwing at you. And um, so in preparation for this conversation, I really dove into his passionate marriage work. Um, which is sort of the layperson's approach to crucible therapy, which is what he calls his work um, yeah. in the therapeutic realm. And, um, and I found myself really appreciating it, in fact. And, and it, it got me irritated because even um, I was listening to this one recording of him and, and he said something that was dismissive of attachment theory. And, yes. and I love what attachment theory brings to the conversation about relationships, both like how you un come to understand your own dysfunction in relationship or how you come to understand the function of the dyad, like what, what that does for you and, and concepts of safety and how that enables you to differentiate. I love that. And it kind of bridges into um, Ellen Bader and Peter Pearson's developmental model too, which we can talk about in a little bit. 
But um, that all being said, when I heard him talking about the importance of hold, knowing who you are and at the same time being able to remove your distortions of who you are. And he talks about part of the crucible being that your partner being there, that's a great way for you to learn where you actually aren't who you think you are, um, just as one example. Or you get to, through self-reflection, see some of the dysfunction in who you are and actually work towards growth and improvement. Um, but when he talks about differentiation, he talks about some things that I I think are key. You know, you talk about not only holding on to who you are, but also your ability to self-soothe. So to take responsibility for yourself when you're triggered. Like how many times have we talked about that on the show? Um, he talks about um, getting over your reactivity. So taking responsibility for not freaking out at your at your partner when they trigger you again so important and fits right in and then he talks about and, and i love this concept the idea and this is some a place where i feel like he's kind of unique and you can correct me if i'm wrong here keith because you have a broader perspective perhaps than i do but he talks about um he names his approach as a non-pathological approach. In other words, like if things are going wrong, then nothing is wrong. It's like, that's what you would come to expect. And, and that part of what he holds as an ideal in relationship is the ability to hold on to yourself, to self-soothe, to not get reactive with your partner, and to hold the container of relationship when things get uncomfortable. And that does seem so important to being able to grow with your partner. Like if you're so focused on fixing things and one of you capitulating to the other, it's not that there's never a place for compromise, but it's like in, I think in, in so many couples rush to that, they, they overlook the actual growth potential that happens in truly experiencing themselves as separate individuals with different ideas about how to live and how to how to be in the world or how to be with each other. It's a wonderful approach. It's a wonderful understanding. Um, I like it. Um, I, and then I use those concepts and those understandings and have ever since I learned the system. That the system has a great uh, efficacy, practically speaking. That being said, so let's just expand. Okay, so it's great to say it's a non-pathological system. Okay, fine. And, and, and basically, effective therapists operate from that perspective. Here's two people. They want to change. They want to grow. That power of, of a human consciousness wanting to change and wanting to grow is so robust that there's a lot of details of self-regulation and, and, and moderation and, and, and holding on to yourself and understanding. Um, but you know, there's, that, there's that basic core of, that, of power of human consciousness wanting, wanting to grow. That's true. And psychopathology has existence. If somebody has a personality disorder, um, the, there's no couples approach that is going in, – in my experience, maybe I'm wrong because, you know, I'm, I've been doing, doing my own work. I mean, you know, it's – I mean, I, my, my lab is my, is my practice. I've done 65,000 therapy sessions. And so, you know, I take stuff into my lab, so to speak. Uh, but – so psychopathology has existed. Sometimes you need to go into that – to help people grow, you have to tell somebody, you know, like you have a distorted view of the world and need to have some individual work 
to deal with that, or you are so overwhelmed by your trauma history that you have to go resolve that trauma before you can experience sexuality and intimacy with your partner comfortably. Um, that needs to be normalized. Um, and, you know, there's a subtle uh, uh, bias in integral, we would call that a pluralistic bias or a green bias to treat everybody like they're the same. You know, this is what causes David Data to dismiss psychotherapy in general. Now, that's an interesting thing. David, you know, I'm a psychotherapist. I teach psychotherapy. I write about psychotherapy. I've generated systems. I'm a founder of systems. I go to David Data workshops. He generally puts down therapists as uh, psychotherapy as being kind of uh, pluralistic, limp-wristed, uh, egalitarian, second stage, uh, you know, wimps, so to speak. And I still love the guy. Okay. <laughs> okay. So why is that? Uh, you know, probably part of it is, is because... I see, a, see him as a kindred spirit, as a, as a, as a fellow warrior. But we, you and I were talking about this earlier. But pro- part of it is I probably have more projections with people like uh, like David Snarch or or uh, um, Susan Johnson. You know, like that moralistic. There's, maybe there's a part of me that has moral disgust that I don't like, and I project onto them. I do that with a little bit of Dan Siegel. I love Dan Siegel's work. I've studied his books. I've listened to his lectures endlessly. I've enjoyed his lectures. And every once in a while, though, on stage, he starts complaining about how somebody treated him badly or how somebody doesn't understand him or, you know, he had to push back. And I just find that icky. And I go, Dan, don't say stuff like that. You know, that makes the rest of the cool stuff that you talk about. You know, you're a brilliant man and you've, you've changed everybody. You know, your book, The Developing Mind, was my foundation of neurobiology, interpersonal neurobiology. You know, Alan Shore similar. You know, he, he says everybody bow evidence-based treatment. You know, he's irritated with the American Psychological Association privileging um, the research, uh, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy, I suspect, um, because cognitive behavioral therapists in the labs around the country get a lot of money and other people don't. So there's, there's a lot of personality that comes through, and yet all these systems have wonderful things ab- ab- about them. You know, so Snarch is more practical, moralistic in that sense. Uh, Esther Perel is more practical romantic. I mean, she's practical. All the good therapists are practical. You know, you're with a couple. We're going to help them move forward and understand them individually and, and as a couple. And we have a vision of good relating that's for effective therapists is similar. But she has basically a romantic approach. You have your own way of understanding yourself and of love. And I support that as a therapist. And you have your understanding of what you want with this relationship, and I support what you want. And your, your partner is similarly, and we deal with that, and from an accepting standpoint and a practical standpoint, how can we move forward? Uh, uh, you feel enlivened by your secret affair that devastated your partner. I understand how you feel enlivened by that. I understand the draw of that. I understand your resentment at your partner for not being more cooperative and creating better love. The, the partner is outraged that you did this. Well, I understand your outrage. I understand your desire to love better. She's, it's a very romantic approach, but it, it fits very well with all the scientific approaches, the moralistic approaches, with even David Data's mythological approach. I mean, David's a, David Data is basically a practical mythological approach. He draws from the wisdom traditions of masculine and feminine. He used to teach the Shiva and Shakti scale, just you know, brought it out of the Eastern traditions. Um, and yet, it's it's practical. This is how we can help you understand yourself, understand your partner, and understand how you enhance the polarity to have the intimacy and safety and love and passion that you want. 
And if you get down to it in the, the, the psychotherapy session, you watch, if you watched any of us doing a session with people, you'd see very similar constructs that we're applying and you'd see very similar interventions. Yeah, it's so funny. I was listening to uh, the first season of Esther Perel's uh, podcast that she put out with uh, with Audible. Uh, I think it's called Where Do We Begin or something like that. And um, and one of the sessions I was like, I'm this might as well be Harville Hendricks that I'm listening to just in terms right. of how she was showing up for that couple and talking about safety and the way they were constructing their communication. And it was like right out of his getting the love you want workshop practically, you know, and and uh, so that was fascinating right. for me. And 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 I think worth noting because if you're just a bystander and you're like, say, listening to the Relationship Alive podcast, um, you can be so persuaded by one person's um, viewpoint or the other. And in fact, I find myself, like you were mentioning earlier, Keith, persuaded over and over and over again because <laughs> yes. everyone's system has so much merit to it um, that you might lose sight of where where they both offer you something important. Um, Sue Johnson and David Schnarch, you know, it's interesting that you that you've paired them together um, because obviously they're in some ways they would see themselves as being in opposition to each other. Um, yes. And yet, uh, you know, how many times have I seen with clients how important creating safety is to them taking a stand for who they are? And vice versa, if they're all about the safety and they never take a risk by being who they are, I've seen that be problematic too. So it's like everyone is kind of reacting to the, the, um, what's the word? The distorted, kind of like the extended version. Like if you go way too far into differentiation, you know, that's not going to be a relationship. If you go way too far into creating safety or your, your couple bubble, like Stan calls it, Stan Tatkin, um, then you might lose the, the edge or the eroticism, which is what Esther would, would hone in on. You've lost your sense of the other person as of other. You're too safe. So it's so interesting because even in just this past three, sentences or so you've heard me jump from like one to the other to the other trying to show you like yeah they all actually feed into each other if you're really really stuck like a lot of people are i think you know that's why Esther's ted talk took off because so many people are are stuck um i think she writes in the state of affairs that sexless marriage is like one of the top google searches or something like that yeah um so if you're in a sexless marriage, then when someone starts talking about how you feel too safe and you're you're you've come to not think of your partner as someone else. Um, and and so here are some ways to get you back to to a more erotic, playful space with your partner, then you're going to listen and that's going to make sense to you. But it wouldn't make sense to you if you had no safety in your container and your partner was like constantly texting other people and making you, you know, flirting with the uh, waiters and waitresses at the restaurants. And, you know, if you, if you were in a totally unsafe world, then that's not going to be a place where, where Esther's work might, or at least what you might initially think she's getting at. But again, this is just her Ted talk. You hear her in a session and she's talking about creating safety with, with, within a couple. Exactly. 
practically speaking, everybody comes from constructs that involve relational patterns, a developmental orientation, that people are influenced by unconscious influences and trauma programming. Everybody has a vision of happy relating for every couple they work with. No effective couples counselor doesn't do that. We all, if we have a couple, we immediately start having a vision of how they could be getting along better with each other. And all couples counselors are informed by the psychological and psychotherapeutic traditions. And, you know, a therapeutic relationship, attunement, and that kind of stuff. Now, you, when you look at it from, for, for me, uh, the, the, the breakdown between the, you know, like snarks dissing attachment theory and, 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 and Susan Johnson saying, I have the only couples therapy. We never had a theory before me, okay? Well, look, if you say to a bunch of founders, who have their own theories. You never had a theory that a good theory of couples until me. Everybody's going to get pissed off. So, you know, Susan Johnson says, I go, Susan, you've got a good system. You got a good theory. You don't have to piss us all off by saying that. You can, you can, you know, you can say, I got a couple's thing that I prefer to yours. And so John Gobbin, you know, will go up in a workshop and say, well, we have our theory. You know, you know, he's speaking directly to that. Now, all that being said, Esther Perel and Snarch make a point that a lot of co other couple people, couples people miss. They go, look, sexuality is a big deal and it's been neglected by the field. And they're right about that. You know, that was true in the, in the 70s. People, therapists wouldn't even ask their couples about sex. It just drove me crazy. So I did a lot of sex therapy training in the 70s because I realized that to be effective with couples, I needed to, to be really good at helping them have better sex. And integrated that into my work and have ever since. And, and David Data's stuff has been priceless around that stuff. And so the field has kind of grown to that. And their credit, once again, uh, John Gottman and, and Julie, they have their system of expanding the conversation about sexuality and the behaviors about sexuality because they've demonstrated from their research that it's not enough to just down-regulate conflict with a couple. You have to up-regulate good times. And as I make the point that I make in my Loving Completely approach – a marriage is a is a friendship, a love affair, and a capacity to, to uh, heal injuries and ruptures. That love affair is a big deal. Um, that first star, you know, this erotic polarity between me and my partner gets more space in my book than any of the other stars. Why? You know, if that love affair isn't happening, then there's a lot of problems that arise out of that. And that's that sexless marriage statistic that Esther mentions in her book. And stated, you know, I wrote a book called 100 Reasons to Not Have a Secret Affair. I couldn't find a publisher for it. And I read State of Affairs and I said, wow, I like this a lot better than my book. Um, <laughs> I really think that's a really good book about uh, affairs. And, it, and it, it, you can just feel that practical romantic orientation. On her part. Yeah. And when you say romantic, let's just, can you get more clear on what that means? Just so we get you there. Esther has, um, uh, is, this is now, this is just my reading of her. Okay. And I've never talked to her. I hope I do someday. Um, there's a sense for her about love. There's a mystery, a cross-cultural mystery about love. There's love is, I want to be loved, I want to love, and I want to do it in a way that works for me. And if it's not happening, I'm suffering and I want to make it happen. 
And if if it's not happening and I'm suffering, I, I, I need to I need to, to take that suffering into the world and into my own development, into my relationship and make love happen. And there's a certain mysterious quality about it. And, you know, yes, there's things that interfere with it, like lies and abuse and all that other stuff. And and to a certain extent, because she works an awful lot with infidelity and, and that kind of stuff. You can see, you know, our, 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 our practices shape our theoretical understanding. There's that sense of if we open that up, then love will, will happen. Now, hopefully it happens with us as a couple. But if it doesn't, okay. You know, it didn't happen. Love, love it, the relationship just because it ends wasn't um, unsuccessful. We lose each other. We move on and we find love someplace else. Okay, to me, this is very romantic. Okay, this is this is a, a, a subjective love-based, romance-based orientation towards eroticism and sexuality, um, and it's very effective uh, because that's how, in terms of the neurobiology of bonding, yes. You know, we go from our various arousal systems into attraction, into distracting attraction, into romantic infatuation, into intimate bonding, into life stages. Now, what I think I think Esther misses because she doesn't seem to be as interested in the science is that it's an apples and oranges comparison that early attraction, distracting attraction, romantic infatuation, sexual drives with the sexual drives that exist in intimate bonding. Okay, in intimate bonding, there, there, I've discovered, or it's been my, it's been my experience, to get to, to go into those romantic infatuation circuits. It's very, very, it's very intricate and detailed, and it's very, and it's not nearly as easy as finding a new person that you don't know. And so you can't compare. Well, it's very hard to develop romance and passion with my husband, but really easy with my lover. Well, of course it is. We're wired to have that be the case. That's not the point. The point is that, and now we're getting into an integral understanding of evolution of consciousness. As we expand our consciousness, as we get more world-centric and more compassionate and less bullshit, our relationships are more demanding. Um, and so it's very, very difficult. I, mean, I haven't found relationships where people have the, the depth of connection that they want, knowing each other and accepting each other and loving each other deeply, that they have that and that that container, which is powerful but fragile, can tolerate one of them going out and falling in love with another person. Um, um, and also that container suffers if they don't do what they need to do to, to take care of their love affair, to have a love affair that they believe in, that they're sustaining with each other. And, and so why is that fragile? Uh, well, because it requires an awful lot um, of attention and knowledge and understanding and self-regulation. Um, why is it great? Because there's deeper intimacy available in that container than in previous containers over the last 10,000 years. Um, and it's more demanding. Um, if you have a very, very primitive Say you have a relationship that's this pure conformist. You know, we're getting married. You know, we're going to have kids. We're going to do what the Bible says or the Quran says. In those cultures, women stop having sex with their partner um, when they stop being of childbirth age in general. Fascinating study. They just go, you know, at that point they go, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. A lot. Not always, but to a fair amount. Okay. You know, why is that? Because there isn't a developmental layer of intimacy that that they and their husband are working for because they're in a system where he's in charge. She has to do what he says. You know, I do. I say yes to sex until I can't have kids anymore. And then I can say no if I want. And if we don't have a certain level of intimacy and a commitment to depth, 
why would be we be interested? You know, he would be going after youth and beauty and maybe I'll have an affair or maybe I won't. It just depends. You know, if you're going in, but if you both have the sense of equal depth, if you both are post-formal operational, if you both want to sustain your friendship and your love affair and expand it and expand each other, well, then that requires um, uh, a different kind of inner subjectivity. Okay, so these, these are very complicated forces that are operating on all of us. Now, they're explicit in integral psychotherapy because we always look at lines and levels. And, and probably you're going to tell me about Ellen Bader, probably in their developmental model, because developmental models notice that people's worldviews change and that relationships, um, demands of relationship change as we go in, into different developmental levels. Um, the other ones, the effective ones, unconsciously adjust for different people's worldviews, but sometimes don't consciously do it because it's it's not visible to them consciously, but unconsciously in the session, they get a feel for it and they attune to it. Uh, just like if you're an effective therapist, Stan Tatkin has practically nothing about sexuality in his system. But I'll bet if people come into his system suffering from not being sexual, he climbs in, understands their experience from the inside, finds out where they're, they're turning each other on and off, and helps them find the kind of safety that they need to move into eroticism. And eroticism is very central because it's like the canary in the coal mine. Everything else has to be going pretty well for you to be good lovers with your partner. It's very rare as a couples counselor for people to come in saying, yeah, we're both full fulfilled sexually. We enjoy sex. We have sex regularly. um, And we want a divorce. That actually happens once in a great while, but that's like one in a hundred. Usually when people come in and say sex is great – There's a solidity to their relationship and they're coming in to talk about other kinds of issues, money issues, sometimes, sometimes, um, uh, often child issues and parental issues, sometimes physical issues, that kind of stuff. Okay. So, um, yeah, there are several different directions that I feel myself being pulled and I think think where I'm going to go right now is is on this practical level um, because we, I want this to all be practical and we're talking about all these systems as practical systems. I think, I think I heard Schnarch say that, um, and I don't think this is an actual statistic. I think he was just making a point, which was in a good relationship, uh, sex makes up about 10% of what you think about and care about. But if the, if the sex is bad, no, if the sex is good, then it's about 10% what you think about and care about. If the sex is bad, it's 90% or non-existent. Um, and so I'm thinking about that in light of what you just said and wondering like, okay, for, for people listening who are in this place where they're like, okay, well, I'm not connecting with my partner erotically. Should I be going to a sex therapist? Should I be going to an EFT therapist to work on my safety? Should I be like, I could feel, I can feel confusion there around like, what do you do practically? Cause so many people might see like, oh, you're not having sex. Well, then let's talk about sex. Others might say, you're not, you're not having sex. Well, that's a symptom of so many other things going on in your relationship. So let's talk about the other things and we'll talk about sex later. Well, first of all, go to a good couples therapist who understands eroticism. I, it doesn't matter what system they're, they're operating in. They're a good therapist, good couples therapist, experienced and, and know how to attune and, and have the things that I mentioned, you know, those qualities and understand eroticism. 
One of the reasons that Snart says that is that in general, human consciousness goes where the pain is. We have a half dozen sex drives. I mean, we don't just have one. We have lots of them. And so if one of those sex drives is activated in a negative way, say jealousy, that's a lot of pain. You know, say, you know, frustration, frustrated, you know, you're, it, this happens a lot with guys after the first baby's born, a baby's born. Okay, their, their wife kind of gets over the birth and he, he finds her utterly adorable and desirable. Yeah, this is adorable. She's in love with this kid. She's full of love. You know, you know, we're sharing this thing and he wants to have sex. Okay. She's in love with the kid. She's got follicle stimulating hormone and, you know, up the wazoo. You know, her desire is down biochemically. If, if she doesn't have a commitment to reestablishing their love affair, then he's in pain. And so what does he do? He makes jokes about it. And there's all these bazillion jokes about men wanting more sex, you know, mothers with small children and, and guys, you know, women don't want to have sex out, you know. And these are hostile jokes and these separate people. And in general, three years after the birth of the first baby, according to Gottman's research, 70% of couples are doing worse. But what if you teach them about affection and eroticism and sensuality and say, you know, you need to sustain this after the birth of the first child. You need to both be on board with it. Okay, well, if you teach them that, then then three years later, 70% of them are saying, yeah, we're actually better as lovers. Okay. Now, you need, in my experience, that's useful information for me to have as a couples therapist. Um, I, it's useful for me to know the parameters of that, just like it's useful for me to know about psychopathology. You know, if somebody has some kind of trauma thing or, 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 or personality disorder or, or some kind of um, uh the debilitating, to, or God knows, you know, bipolar, that kind of stuff, that has to be addressed. That really has existence. So you go to a therapist that has a general understanding and is good with sexuality uh, in general. I mean, I don't know if I'd want to go to, a, to any couples therapist who didn't understand the principles of sexuality and the sex drives and the stages of sexual bonding, um, whether I was working on sex or not. It's such a central part of, of, of the life stages of a relationship. You know, you don't just have one marriage, you have many marriages. And there's different demands at each, each developmental level of marriage. And you want to be true to those demands and help each other with them. And good couples therapists all do that. Whether they do it consciously or unconsciously doesn't really matter. You know, they do it because they're, they're inside the universe of these couples helping them grow and they discover these blocks and they have their own orientation to help people through them um, and help people into deep inner subjectivity, into love with each other. Um, and so that's, you know, the, the, all good couples therapists can attune. Um, they all interrupt people all the time. Because you got to interrupt toxic patterns, and they all have some sense of what a positive pattern is. You know, all couples therapists suspend their ego in service of their clients. You know, if you have too much ego in the session, you lose your capacity to help people. Okay, I mean, you know, all all good couples therapists um, are willing to share their their clients' pains. All good couples therapists, you know, tell vivid enough stories, have vivid enough metaphors that they register, they land with people. You know, they're bringing their best selves into the work. So that's, that's if you took anybody from any system and, and saw them work and they were effective, you'd see that in my opinion. 
And so that's their natural healing style. And, you know, you keep expanding that. And after a while, and what breaks my heart about this is since people resist change, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of natural healing styles in existence being, in, in, being embodied by great practitioners that we'll never find out about. Because, you know, there's a resistance in the field to, you know, new systems. And these people don't have as much, you know, I don't advocate much for any of my systems. So as a founder, I haven't like, you know, pushed to make one of my systems famous. Okay, well, that means a lot of people haven't encountered a bunch of my systems. Okay, well, that's that's kind of a weakness in my approach as a founder, really, because if I want to make an impact, I should go out and beat drums about my systems, and I don't. I go, well, yeah, I like my systems, but the other ones are great too. Use the one that study the ones that turn you on. Yeah, turn that and have that enhance and expand your natural healing style. What lights me up is people doing that. Um, and if they want to use my system, if they like it, of course, I get a little ego rush from that. Sure, that's great. <laughs> Everybody likes to be told they're great. You know, you're you're great, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, oh, and- it's a little embarrassed, but you know, I also often do if my clients compliment me extravagantly, I'll I'll get embarrassed. Partly because of transference stuff, you know. Okay, so people go through stages and partly because you know i'm uncomfortable with my ego i don't want it to show up in my session anyway yeah yeah and i'm thinking of something you said earlier about uh systems that um that maybe do or don't actually handle mental health all that well that there's um you know a lot of these systems work well in the context of someone isn't suffering with major depression or borderline personality disorder. Um, and that made me think of certain modalities that are helpful with that. Like in particular, what came to mind was internal family systems, Dick Schwartz's system. I and, love that. And, um, and there's been an, an evolution of that uh, intimacy from the inside out, which is basically applying internal family systems to couples therapy. Um, yes. And uh, that uh, Tony Herbine Blank, she's been here on the show to talk about that. Um, I, I this is something that I feel particularly connected to is this question of how we in relationship actually show up for each other to help heal. Because um, I don't think that there are many people in our world that have escaped some form of trauma or another. I think we all have like places where we're wounded or where we don't want to go. Um, so, you know, we're talking about all of these systems in many ways from the perspective of like going and seeking help, which I definitely encourage you to do. It's like a good idea to go. And as Keith was talking about um, a little while ago, to have that outside perspective until you're really good at getting outside perspective on your own. Um, but that being said, uh, I, I like those modalities because the more conscious I think you get of how you heal from trauma. So I'm thinking of, yes, internally family systems, somatic experiencing, um, the things that really enable you to identify what's happening within you, both your, your body awareness and, and how you attune to your body, but also, you know, what Dick talks about in internal family systems, literally identifying the different personalities in you who are competing and at war, he calls them parts. Um, yes. And then you can bring those dialogues into your conversations with your partner. Then I think there is a lot of potential through that, through co-regulation um, to, to actually 
heal with each other. I don't know about any studies that show that that's going to be curative if your partner has depression, for instance, but I do have a pretty strong belief that that's going to help you show up in that relationship in a way where you're still feeling connected and and you're in integrity. There are studies that show that it is curative to expand into your intimate relationship, your family relationships, and your social relationships to be curative with, with depression. Just like there's studies, it's many studies overwhelmingly that show that exercise is a better antidepressant than any drug. Um, so that's all true. And the, your central point, I think, is huge. And that central point is when a couple has mobilized to one have compassionate self-observation of both their healthy and unhealthy sides. You know, I go in my shadow light book, I talk about growing your shadow and that our unconscious is constantly giving us constructive and destructive messages and that we have resistances, defenses against being aware of them. And, uh, and to the extent that we do that, we have problems with ourselves and in relationship with other people. Because let's face it, the more intimate you are with yourself, which is having compassionate awareness and self and acceptance and, and of yourself and self-regulation, the more able you are to be intimate with other people. So that's just, that's just how it works. Ask any therapist, any couples therapist. And Dick Schwartz's uh, approach is wonderful in that one. He develops, you'll notice, there's always a compassionate witness observing these inner parts, okay? Just like meditation increases the capacity of the compassionate self-observation, the witness, as we say in the, wit in the wisdom traditions, so do these systems that look at these inner parts. Because if I'm looking at inner parts, who's looking? You know, the compassionate witness is looking and awareness regulates. So as I'm looking at these parts and I'm identifying the constructive and destructive ones, already I am unconsciously upregulating the constructive ones, downregulating the destructive ones. Okay, that's a great language and it's non-judgmental, but it's very, very powerful. Now, say you do that with your partner. Instead of taking offense when your partner says something nasty, you go, wow, that was that nasty subpersonality. And you go, whoa. You know, that was kind of nasty. And they go, oh, that was my nasty self. I'm sorry. Now, at that point, the nasty self isn't in charge. The compassionate witness is in charge, regulating the nasty self and now bonding with that partner. And they are collaborating to help shape each other to be their best selves. When you get to that point with a couple that are doing that with their friendship, their love affair, and their capacity to, to repair injuries, that's a self-sustaining system that creates the great relationships. And you see the great relationships, you see that. It's called the Michelangelo effect. It's been studied. And people end up talking more like each other and looking more like each other. But even more, they get up, the long-term couples will tend to get happier with each other because they're receiving influence to be better. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of openness to receive influence and a lot of self-regulatory capacity. And that always runs from some kind of compassionate witness. And all the systems encourage that. They all have their different names for it. But if you don't have that, then you're kind of left with, with raw behaviorism. And if you do have that, which most of us do, or formal operational or post-formal operational, having that compassionate witness be more robust gives us more options, response flexibility in interpersonal neurobiology, they would say. And response flexibility isn't random. You know, I want to choose the healthy responses, which support love and support health. And I, I want to say no to the unhealthy ones. Okay. 
Okay? But I have to be aware of them. I have to be able to regulate them. That's where Alan Shore comes with regulation theory. Um, that's where Harville Hendricks, his systems basically force people to self-regulate because they can't go into their fight patterns because he's given them different patterns to do. And so probably the power of his system is as much by not allowing people to do their hostile patterns as it is giving them new patterns. And I think that's true for Dick Schwartz, too, in internal family systems. And it's especially useful in trauma because we get overwhelmed with trauma. So anything that causes us to observe trauma without being overwhelmed, whether it's somatic re-experiencing, EMDR, internal family systems, all those things are drawing from the same well in terms of helping us be aware and regulate and then attach and then connect, love other people and be loved by other people. Um, these are the things that the effective systems have in common. Um, now, you know, like practical mythological, somebody might do better if they see themselves at a particular stage of the hero's journey. Great. I love the hero's journey. I'm all over that. I've been studying it all my life and practicing it. Somebody might do great and say, well, I have this destructive, you know, an internal family systems thing. You know, one of my firemen is just driving me crazy, you know, by, by giving me all these, these impulses to regulate myself in unhealthy ways. You go, well, yeah, but he wants that fireman in you wants to feel better. And what are, what's a healthy way to feel better? Oh, now I'm going to these other selves. Okay, these deeper ones. Oh, here's this injured self that, that just really never felt good and still doesn't. Oh, well, we need to love that, that self until it begins to feel like a legitimate person who's in pain. Okay, when that begins to happen, say a childhood injury, most people hate that little kid who was abused, you know, if you had early abuse. Well, once you start loving that kid who was abused, you know, feeling the pain but loving him, saying, hey, look, it wasn't your fault they molested you or beat you up. Things change. There's more freedom of motion and you can love better. Right. And this goes straight to the strengths of a system like EFT and that's based around attachment and yes. why it's so important to recognize the bonding, the safety, the ways that you um, are trying to regulate your safety in, in relationship. And if you're not conscious of that, how the ways you do it are probably going to be jeopardizing, ultimately, the safety of your relationship, even though ironically, you're trying to keep yourself safe in those moments. Yes. And, and now here's the, the paradox of the whole attachment stuff. Um, the, the, the attachment theory just kind of blew the lid off of developmental, the developmental orientation. People have been resisting psychoanalytic saying, uh, uh, the cognitive behaviorists, the cognitive therapists have been resisting for decades the psychoanalyst's assertion that, that infancy and early childhood really matter. Okay. Well, attachment theory showed that it really does, that we do get set up for secure and insecure attachment. And that there's elements of that that go all the way to the adult attachment I industry, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, the, the researchers in Berkeley, God, I forget their name, um, the, uh, Mary, Mary Main um, came up with. Yes. Now, now, there's a little switch here. Okay, because that attachment has to do with mother-infant attachment. And see, okay, now we go into couples and then we got to add that sexual component. You know, adding that sexual component to secure attachment is tricky. Okay. You know, I really don't want to be having be secure with my wife exactly the way I was secure with my mom. I want to have elements of that, but you know, there's not a lot of eroticism there. Hopefully, there isn't, and if there is, there's more problems that I won't. You know, that'd be more complicated. Um, and so now we have to add that erotic component. Now, that erotic component has a lot of other elements in it. 
It has adventure. It has transgression. It has change. It has whoever we discovered we are from a gender standpoint or whoever we discovered we are in terms of our own kinks, whoever, whatever our culture told us about our sexuality, whether it's good or as bad. People discover their sexuality, and if they're lucky, the culture says, oh, that's fine sexuality. You know, say you discover you're a heterosexual guy who likes the missionary position. Wow. You know, when you're married, okay? Boy, you're in good shape. You can feel like a virtuous person. You know, say you discover that you're a transgender person who, you know, you know, kind of likes falling in love with the opposite sex, but likes to have fun sex with the same sex. You know, it can go, you know, one direction or another and, you know, really like being tied up and, uh, um, you know, mildly humiliated before somebody fucks you. Okay, well, you're not going to get a lot of cultural support, at least from most of the cultures that I was raised in for that. So you're raised in an endogenous shame that now you got to deal with that fucking stuff. This is where Sterile Perel's romantic approach is really good. You know, the romantic approach says love triumphs. Love trumps culture. And so if a culture tells somebody that they're wrong, uh, uh, Esther is really good at saying, yeah, well, your culture does not understand how you love and how you love is how you love. And I love that. And I support you. And people feel liberated by that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, that's pretty great. And if you're, a study, if you're a student of integral psychology, you recognize that when you get to an integral level of consciousness, an integral level of consciousness has a felt sense of appreciation from multiple points of view and a diminished fear of death and of other things. Okay, a felt sense of appreciation from multiple points of view. That means I have a felt sense of, of appreciation for however I am wired and how my partner is wired. And now we, we, we don't have a moral problem in finding a love affair. We have a practical problem. You know, we're practical. All these things are practical. Practically, how do we create eroticism, erotic polarity, given who we are? It's not like either one of us is, le- is more or less morally correct. It's we are who we are, and now where's the opportunity for movement and growth and passion? Um, and, and good therapists go there. Um, whether they're at an integral altitude or not in their regular life, most good therapists are at an integral level during their work. If I observe their work and I track that around the characteristics of second-tier functioning, most effective therapists are at that level when they're doing psychotherapy. They have felt appreciation from multiple points of view. They have diminished fear of everything. They have a profound sense of being able to shift the power dynamics, the growth hierarchies and the dominator hierarchies They have in, in the direction of greater love. They have a developmental orientation that intuitively tells them what's healthier and less healthy and what's more love and less love. They're guided by that. And, you know, that's not just rational at all. That's rational plus intuition plus something else. Now, you can do that something else directly by doing contemplative work and having your own understanding of the infinite, or you can do it unconsciously. But basically, good therapists are a channel from something larger than themselves into the session through their systems and their personality. And when that channel's there, magic happens often. And if you don't have that channel, you suffer as a therapist. And if you continue at it, you'll find it. Um, and that's that natural healing style. But when you when you get there... It's connected to something way larger than yourself. Now, if I talked with John Gottman about this, because you can't observe this and measure it and study it and do a questionnaire about it, you go, you know, we should leave religion out of psychotherapy. In fact, I saw him do that once when they were talking about mindfulness. And so anytime he sees any kind of, of, of existential system coming into science, he gets uncomfortable. 
Okay? But it's not that he doesn't do that, and he and Julie don't do that. They bring a sense of the sacred and a sense of a sacred mission to every single uh, uh, class that they teach and session that they do. But they, in a way, they can't acknowledge it because they have to kind of anchor themselves. At least John can't because he has to anchor himself. And, you know, well, really what I'm doing is I'm coming from my research. Yeah, John, you are. But, you know, there's something larger than you coming through you when you're teaching this stuff. I can see it. I can feel it because I have no problem with it. You know, I, don't, I personally do not feel limited by everything has to be validated by social research and science. There's some things that you can only discover from the left quadrants, and that's from phenomenology. Phenomenology is real, but you have to develop the contemplative instruments to perceive things. You have to – and once you have those instruments, then you can perceive things like a channel into the other world. It's as visible as, you know, a, a, a blood cell is on a microscope. But you have to develop the instrument. That instrument is contemplative work and your own spirituality and your own development as a human being. Wow. So this makes me think of a, of a system that we haven't chatted about here yet. And it ties in a little bit to attachment theory um, and also kind of feeds into biohacking. And I'm pretty sure that we that I talked with you privately about um, the book Cupid's Poison Arrow, and we were talking about <laughs> Carezza. And I'm thinking about the way that um, fostering uh, what they call bonding behaviors, behaviors that are uh, oxytocin producing, which is all about our pair bonding, all about our attachment, and and diving into those behaviors allow you to experience some a form of transcendence which feels very contemplative in terms of of one's uh, sexual connection with their partner and and now we're we're talking about sexual development in a way that isn't entirely about eroticism but that in they talk about it in that book because um their theory is that um and i'm i'm saying they but it's marnia robinson who wrote the book is that it's the um the chase for erotic polarity and the dopamine cycle that actually causes habituation to your partner and and escalates your the demise potentially of your relationship and your attraction to your partner whereas if you're focusing on things that promote oxytocin and bonding that you know might you know sue johnson i haven't talked to her about um about marnia's book but i could see her liking it from the perspective of like oh yeah it's like all about attachment um and fostering safety well, now you're able to do something that's also sustainable because we don't develop a tolerance for levels of oxytocin and vasopressin in our systems. Um, so first of all, I laughed because you, you mentioned that book to me. I went, okay, so this is one of those situations where here's a system. So I thought, okay, well, I'll check it out. So I went online, you know, read the first couple of chapters and, oh, really? And so I bought the book and I've read it. Okay. Um, and it's a now. No offense to to Marnia, okay. Um, I, I think that this this system is really, really powerful, and I think it's powerful not just for the reasons that she mentioned. I think it's powerful for other reasons. Um, it's not just oxytocin that is increased by practicing karetsa. 
You also increase vasopressin in men, which is a male bonding right. uh, hormone. You also, you increase testosterone. Going into sexual arousal and not resolving it into orgasm, keeping it into that state increases levels of testosterone, which also, which increase levels of erotic urgency. Okay, that's another thing. Okay. Also, if you look at all the, the practices, including the tantric practices, you'll see that the first levels of most practices involve renunciation. Anytime that a human being takes one of the drives and does renunciation with it, it puts them into a kind of a stark connection with their own material that they have to then wrestle with. And if you do it with a partner together, you two are now engaged in a shared tantric practice. That shared tantric practice of we are now monitoring our levels of connection and love and passion, too. Because, you know, when you do Caretza, you, you go to a certain level and you don't want to get too high or too low. But, you know, you're a level of, er of erotic charge and a level of bonding and you kind of stay there. That's why you don't have orgasms. Now, personally, renunciation is not my favorite, as everybody can probably tell from my tone of voice, <laughs> of practicing. I love orgasms. And so th the way that I manage that in my life is I have frequent sex and frequent orgasms. Okay. Now that keeps me attached to my wife. Um, why? Well, the habituation part of uh, uh, eroticism and so on doesn't just run off of erotic habituation. When you enter the intimate bonding stage of relationship, you have the depth of connection with your partner where you recapitulate your family of origin levels of intimacy. That's when the more primitive and the more the older and, and deeper defenses come out. Those defenses were designed to protect you and to separate you from people that were acting badly. And they happen, happen in intimate bonding and they separate couples. Couples that work through, reach through those defenses into pleasurable contact of all sorts, that's another way of keeping that sense of special connection alive. It doesn't have to do with eroticism necessarily. It has to do with walking into the room and seeing your partner and smiling and feeling the pleasure of your smile and their smile. It has to do with passing her and stroking her head and her feeling the pleasure of that stroke. Uh, couples that they consciously practice those particular kinds of techniques, they, those couples are upping their oxytocin levels on a regular basis. You turn those kinds of practices into habits, then you habitually are increasing oxytocin level. You turn uh, adjusting anger into regulating it into deeper contact, which is what you do when you're working with, with wounding. So you start out separated by anger and then you, you, come, you become connected by resolving it into love for each other. That actually you know, plays on those same uh, chords. Okay? Because habituation happens in many ways, not just one or two ways. Now, the Caressa stuff works really well. It keeps you charged with your partner. And the people that do that kind of stuff report the same kinds of um, benefits that people who consistently practice any of the tantric uh, techniques. Um, and I think it's, you know, if you're wired for that and you and your partner like that, go for it. You know, I, it's the same way I was talking to a guy recently. And I said, you know, you know his, his girlfriend wanted sex more frequently than him, but he, and he was doing his best. I said, well, what, what gets her off? He says, well, she likes Fifty Shades of Grey. I said, oh, constraints, you know, restraints. She said, yeah. I said, well, you know, how do you feel about it? Well, it's, it's okay. No, it doesn't really turn me on. It doesn't turn me off. I said, well, good experiment. Go get, go get some restraints and play with them after you guys get turned on. You know, you, if you're going to do something new, get turned on first because you get more disinhibited when you're aroused. And so they say they do that. Okay, well, then he's brought that element in that, that has kept their eroticism alive. 
because, you know, those restraints might be a fetish. You know, I hate DSM. DSM pathologizes fetishes, you know. Every time I find a fetish with a couple and it doesn't completely turn off the partner, I go, oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and just, just to be clear, your DSM, you're talking about the the diagnostic um, statistical manual, right? You're, I want to just just uh, remove that from BDSM, which is what you're also sort of oh, talking yeah. about in the moment, so. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the DSM, otherwise known as the Book of Woe, has <laughs> every you know has a bazillion things that 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 are human problems, and it has a diagnosis for them. Right. And some of those are quite useful, and some of them are not useful, and some of them are bullshit. And you know, everybody in the field has a lot of hostility towards the DSM, but we have to use it because it's a common language. Um, so. You know, a fetish is a problem if it if it interferes with individual relational health, and it's and it's an asset if it you know can bring eroticism. But my point about it is, to me, the Caretza practices fall within that, and you can see, you know, Caretza started in the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And so, what to me, what Caretza ushered in was the egalitarian marriage between two educated people wanting to maintain a certain kind of special inner subjectivity that was deeper than the people around them. Okay, and and this was a sexual way of doing it. But to be able to do that, you do have to be educated. You do have to be self-aware. You do have to have the capacities for self-regulation. You do have to be consciously sexual and have a conscious sexual practice that goes somewhat against cultural uh, constraints, at least in the first part of the 20th century. Now, all those things that I just said are things that make relationships way better that now – that don't have to do with not having an orgasm or maintaining a certain level of connection, but have to do with everything to do with intimacy, intersubjectivity, and the development of consciousness and the, the co-development of intersubjective consciousness. So I'm appreciating that just like every other system that we've talked about, even Caretza is a model that it's there for you to to try and to see yeah. how that affects you. Does it have a positive impact or a negative impact? If you take Caretza to an extreme and then you happen to have an orgasm, you might feel shame around that. Well, it's yes. it's it stopped helping you at that point, right? <laughs> so so everything in in its in its place to everything its season. Um and that being said, it's it's a helpful seasoning um, to have. You know, uh, back in 19, uh, what was it, um, 79, I was studying with a Taoist priest and a martial artist. I was learning a very intense uh, kind of explosive form of somatic therapy called simple linking therapy. And I became his apprentice and was studying martial arts and uh, and healing with him. I mean, it was just one of those archetypal things. I mean, so in the end, at the very end, I studied like hard. And I became his number one guy. And at the end, there was this yoga called the Yoga of the Five Dragons. And to get the five dragons, you get one dragon every week. And you can't have an orgasm for five weeks. So not, not only that, because he wanted to make it hard for me, I had to go down to his fighting class in San Diego. And I had to fight every guy in that class. Okay, it was just one of those martial arts movies things, you know. <laughs> 
it was at the end I was all covered with blood, right? So they had this circle. They brought this poor young fucker in, you know, come fight Keith. He looked at me and he burst into tears. Oh, my God. <laughs> so then the teacher got in this ring with me and I had to fight, finesse fighting the teacher so I didn't get killed and, and I could get out of there. Uh, anyway, those, that five weeks of not having an orgasm when I was 30 years old was a fucking nightmare for me. <laughs> Now, I can't remember what effects it had on my relationship with Becky at the time. You know, Becky is way more flexible than me around sex. We were intimate. We were supportive and so on. And it was really useful for me. I remember those five weeks with gratitude because I had to kind of discover new things about myself within that context and about us. Um, and so I can really see Caretza being something, if a couple practices it, you're going to go deeper into your love and your eroticism with each other, um, whether you do it for a month or for a lifetime. Um, and that kind of shared practice bonds people. It's kind of like, you know, both of you becoming yoga enthusiasts or, or both of you, you know, really loving um, meditation together. Uh, only this, is, this has a, those erotic, those shared erotic elements that you don't do with other people. That makes couples special. And that special form of eroticism, um, I think, makes you stronger with your partner. And if you like it, you do it. But if you don't like it, then you don't have to do it. Now, maybe I'm just saying that because it'd be great for me to do it and I don't want to give up my orgasms. I don't know. I can't say, Neil. Um, well, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to about it who have literally had that you're not taking my orgasms away from me kind of response. How dare um, you? <laughs> and I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so important, not that it necessarily become a lifelong practice, but particularly because of those habitual ways that we think about our sexual selves and that we're driven to orgasm. I think that it's, it's helpful to really peel that back a little bit and as an adult, as a mature adult, to take some perspective on how you even learned to be a sexual being and and to re-experience yourself to some degree. And if you're not having orgasms and and you're someone who's been orgasm motivated, then that's going to give you a totally new way of understanding how you're even relating to your partner. And it definitely gives you a much broader vocabulary in bed if suddenly you're like, well, I'm I'm not being driven to orgasm. So what the hell am I going to do? You know, I got to I got to figure this out. So it, it I think it's also a very useful vehicle to just waking up other parts of you that that then yeah why not integrate integrate it all um but integrate it from having that new perspective where you're not just being run by the need and so many people do express that as a need i'm not sure that it is a need but the need for orgasms um, it's a drive and so first of all it's it's a drive so you know with the drives we don't we don't deny that denying the drive screws us up Integrating the drives into a larger consciousness makes us bigger people. The, the great thing about Caretza is that when you're pushing towards orgasm, it's more individualistic. If you do Caretza, you're always in the, in the, in the inner subjectivity with your partner. Um, uh, couples that are able to do that. Yeah, I make love and I have orgasms or I don't have orgasms or whatever. Or I care. Some people don't care to have orgasms during during lovemaking. But I like the connection and I maintain the connection. Um, it's, it's frankly 
way, way easier if you're doing caressa to maintain that intersubjective connection, to feel it, you know, to feel that as the primary mover of your eroticism. It's not getting off that's the primary mover, it's that. And so it's a beautiful system for that. And so, is, is it a good thing to try? Sure, it's a good thing to try. If you and your partner feel like there's more love and passion if you do it, is it a good thing to continue? Sure, it's a good thing to continue. Um, the, is it alarming when you've been acting out on a drive, you know, to, you know, go to orgasm? And somebody says, no, you can't act out on the drive. You've got to suppress your drive. People get all defensive. And, and rather than examine their defensiveness, we'll try to find some reason why you're wrong. <laughs> Well, you know, in integral, you go, how, how is this right? How does it fit into the larger framework of the infant variation of consciousness but still, that still predictably goes through certain stages and has a directionality? Well, if something's creating more love and more connection and more of an erotic specialness with you and your partner, it's going to be a good thing, in my opinion, if you both feel that. Um, now, if one person is denying themselves and doing it for you and being pissed off about it secretly, that's codependent. And as we all know, being counterdependent, pretending you don't need people sucks. That's differentiation, pathological differentiation. Being codependent sucks, which is, you know, serving somebody in a way that denies yourself or supports your pathology. Being interdependent, where you two are appropriately connected in ways that support your individual development and your collective development. That's the gold standard for human beings. Um, and so we want everything that we can to support interdependence around our friendship, our love affair, and our capacity to heal ruptures. Um, those three things are central to all the systems. And the Karetza fits into it. It fits into it quite beautifully, in my opinion. And particularly a pro-sexual system in the beginning of the 20th century and in the 19th century. Remember, Christianity is not pro-sexual. These people were really going against the culture. You know, the, the, the minute today, you know, when you go to a, to a, if you go to a fundamentalist church and you got a pastor saying, yeah, I want everybody to have sex every day for the next year, month, which, which happens. This is Christianity, progressive Christianity moving towards being a more pro-sexual system. And I think that's necessary and, it, and beautiful. Um, and that's the development of that particular tradition, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, I love how it's become another one of our, of our many paths to Rome. And I also like how you put that into the integral context. Um, I think that's helpful for, for me and probably for everyone listening because we can talk about integral and, and we haven't even, and you mentioned at the very top that it's a meta system. So it's a way of seeing systems. Um, yeah. So I think it's helpful to, to understand that evolution, that that's, that's maybe the, the bias. And it happens to be a bias that I appreciate of looking at things from an integral perspective. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. You know, the, the, the downside of it is that I can't really, you know, I can't go out and say, hey, buy my loving completely book, do my loving completely system, and you'll be a much better couple therapist. You know, then you'll be better than the other people. I go, no. You know, you take my book and you read it and you apply it to your life or you apply it to your practice. It'll probably enhance your life and your practice. Um, as a therapist, will it make you better than other good therapists? Well, it'll make, it'll make you a better therapist. Will it make you better than other people? I don't know. No. You know, if somebody <laughs> else is doing a really good work, you know, out of their system and they're getting results, 
they're doing fine. And, and if they tried to kind of shape themselves into Keith's understanding, you know, bring in integral and, and neurobiology and the stages of bonding and, you know, telling jokes and whatever it is I do, you know, opening up a channel into the other world and letting that flood into the session, which is what I do in most of my sessions. You know, if you go, oh, I'm going to try to do that instead of what I naturally want to do, it's probably going to screw you up. Now, if you're really excited by that, you go, yeah, I want to try that and put myself in that shape. Absolutely do it. And then what you'll end up discovering is your own version of that. And, you know, people end up having, I, I just need to say, I mean, whether they do it consciously or unconsciously, good therapists really are bringing in something larger than themselves into the container of the session. And, you know, I, just because I can see that and, and other people can't sometimes doesn't mean that it's not always there with people that are doing healing work. Um, I, now, I personally think it's better to be aware of it, so it's, it's easier to regulate it up if you're aware of it. But that's not necessary. Um, consciousness of it isn't necessary, but the presence of it does make the work more sacred and more beautiful, in my opinion. And in integral, those are your three validity standards, what's true objectively, what's beautiful aesthetically, and what feels good intersubjectively and morally, the beautiful, good, and true. Mm. So I'm wondering, and this might be our last question for today, because I feel like we've covered so much territory and hopefully this has been helpful for you listening um, to get so many different perspectives. And and hopefully if we've pissed anyone off, uh, Sue, John, David, if you're <laughs> Stan, if you guys are listening. <laughs> sorry, you guys. Really, really sorry if I irritated you. I'm just trying to be a truth teller. I love your systems. <laughs> um. If we've pissed you off, hopefully it's in a good way. Hopefully you see that this is all meant to be just in service of of taking this all uh, to a place where it's really benefiting the most people possible. And And that brings me to my last question for you. And this is, I'm just curious to hear your answer. Do you think that we'll get to a point where the last book on how to have a good relationship will have been written? And people will just be like, you know what? Like, we're just going to like, this is the book and there's no other, no, I mean, some people might say that's the Bible, right? But, um, but do you think that we'll, we'll get to that place where it's just going to be like, you know what? Indisputably, this is, this is the book. This kind of covers it and it manages to encompass the light, the dark, the this, the that, the breadth of the spectrum. And it's all there. So the the short answer to that is no. <laughs> That's no that book is not going to be written. Um, you know, Loving Completely is my eighth book, and I'm working on a book on trauma now. You know, in that book on trauma, those nine books together are a cosmology that's a, that's an accurate reflection of how I understand the universe, how I understand people in love and psychopathology and healing, and how to move forward developmentally in the world and support the evolution of consciousness. Okay, so that's Keith's system. Um, it's integrally informed, but still, it's he's got my my personality and my psychology and my biases all over it. So that's going to be true for everybody. Also, we grow through stages. We grow from egocentric, which is age-appropriate to little kids, to ethnocentric, you know, where we're conformist to, to other standards. They don't have to make sense, which is, which is normal for grade schoolers, to rational, 
uh, at teenage, which we're, we can do critical analysis, but we're attracted to merit-based hierarchies. The pluralistic, which you see in Latin college, where there's people who are egalitarian and multicultural. The integral, where you're looking at everything in, in authority and, and uh, goes in a flex flow standard. You notice power, uh, growth hierarchies and dominator hierarchies and choose growth hierarchies. Okay, so every one of those worldviews responds differently to different uh, teaching about love. Um, you know, when I, when I write, I try to write to all of those worldviews, um, but each one of them is listening differently because we all look at different worlds. And, there's, and, and the worldviews don't stop. They don't stop at integral. Um, you go from integral to uh, a level of connecting where you want to connect with like-minded others to serve the world. You and I are doing that now. That's, that's the next level after integral. There's another level after that where there's a constant relationship with spirit in whatever you do. And then there's another level after that. Okay. Now, the more, the higher you go, the fewer people meet you there. But if someone understands that territory and writes a book about it, it's just one of the pleasures of the world to run into that book and go, oh my God. You know, this is what Ken Wilber's stuff did to me. You know, there was a part of my consciousness that was bursting to grow and wasn't finding a map to, to, to grow until I found the integral map, the meta theory, and then bam. It, it literally transformed my consciousness. I'm a different person in many ways. I see a different world, um, um, and I've progressively seen different worlds. And so what, what's, what's going to happen more and more, particularly now that there's this explosion of knowledge, is people will write their, their books in the, from their systems to whoever it is they're talking to. And, you know, you, you t I'm focusing more on people that are rational and post-rational. But, you know, fundamentalists could get stuff out of my book and egocentric people can. But I'm not writing it to an egocentric audience. Um, if I was, I would write a book about the warrior and the man of wisdom. Um, when I have egocentric guys in here, I go, I challenge them to be a warrior of integrity moving towards man of wisdom. You know, red egocentric power God types guys like that. Okay. If I have an egocentric uh, uh, feminine person, um, I challenge her to be the embodiment of whatever, whatever her concept is of the feminine design moving towards woman of wisdom. Okay, those work very well in my experience with egocentric worldviews, but they don't work very well with ethnocentric worldviews and so on. And so as we expand and we understand that all these worldviews, all these ways of, of visioning, of, of, of in experiencing the world are valid and that they do develop progressively, you don't skip levels when you grow on a developmental line, and that each one of them is available for different kinds of input. Terry O'Fallon up, up north does this. She says that you, you, you have to inhabit certain kinds of states before you can make it to the next developmental level, and those states involves understanding, but they also involve a visceral experience of certain things. Um, if you don't have a visceral experience of, say, um, the infinite, you, you can't get to a particular development on a level on your uh, psychosocial line or your, or your self line. If you don't have an experience of world centricism, of all people being connected, we're all of us being brothers or sisters, you can't really get to a world centric worldview.
Okay, you have to have that experience. It's a felt experience. So the books all speak to the different stages and the different developmental levels and the, the different systems. And so we'll, we'll keep on writing books and we'll keep on coming up with new systems and we'll keep on, you know, interfacing it with technology like neurofeedback um, or therapeutic systems like somatic re-experiencing, EMDR and so on. And we'll keep on refining our understanding of development and what's going on neurobiolo neurobiologically in the different developmental stages, but also not just in individually because we grow up in a relationship what's going on relationally when you shift from infant to, to toddler to young kid um to sexually aware um you know neil one of just 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 the final be in my bonnet <laughs> okay but, you know i work with families i tell families talk about you know you control what your kids see control images you know screens whatever but talk to them about everything you know, couples, I don't want to talk to my kid about sex until they're, what, 14 or something or 11. Or, no, talk to them about sex when they're two or three. I'm not going to talk about, about violence to my kid because I don't want them to – talk to them about violence when they can talk. Talk to them about everything. And then and, – but control the images. You know, you don't want them to have traumatic images, but you want them to have a global understanding of how the world works and how they work because they're sexual beings. They have impulses to violence. How are they going to understand their sexuality, their impulse to violence, their selfishness and so on unless you can see it, normalize it and help them understand it within the context of development and the cultures that they're in? Um, talk to them about everything and from an accepting standpoint and a standpoint of in our family, we focus on everybody developing and mom and dad are developing just like the kids are developing. Those are the families that seem to do the best in my opinion. And those are the couples that do the best. It's not like we ever get there. We're always working at loving each other better. And, and you know, I'm going to be working at loving Becky better until one of us dies. Okay? Or until my brain dissolves <laughs> or whatever the hell. Okay? okay, so why? Because that, that commitment lets me know I want to make it work now. But, but I'm always, my job is to make it work a little bit better. Okay, because that grows me and it grows her, and there's something sacred about that. I'm not just doing it because it makes me happier, and I'm not just doing it because it makes us happier. I'm doing it because I think it makes the world a better place. It makes me a better therapist. Um, those are the you know we're doing. I'm doing it for world centric reasons as well as egocentric reasons because development is included in the transcend. You know, you, you know, you never lose egocentricism, but you do get world centricism or even life centricism. I'm doing this so hopefully people will stop this great die off that we're doing now and start saving the planet. Um, I think that the, contributing to the evolution of consciousness is contributing to solving those problems. And so that's my attempt to do it. That's a motivation system that runs me as well as the other ones. And that's true for all of us. Yeah, it's certainly true for me as well with, with the podcast and, and this work. It's, you know, as I hear you talk about all those different levels of how we're contributing, I'm, I'm right there with you. That's, you know, I've sat back and thought about it a lot recently. I mean, having celebrated the three-year anniversary of the podcast just a, a month ago, or so. And I was just kind of like, why am I doing this? And it's interesting, right? Because yeah. some of those reasons are personal. Like, yeah, this is Neil Satin wanting to make his mark on the world. Then I'm able to step back from that and say, yeah, and I want to make a mark on the world. I want to make this world a better place. And I want to make it a better place for my kids, for you listening, for, for future generations, for, you know, hopefully there are, you know, there's a long future ahead of us as a, as a planet. 
And then, you know, even potentially, you know, when aliens finally do make contact with us or we with them, then hopefully we're in a better position to do that in a way that's actually constructive. Um, that's the first time I've spoken those words. So, you know, <laughs> I, did, I wouldn't have told you. I, I'm going to have to interview Whitley Stryber now. I'm going to have to get him on the on the show. Well, that's why I love talking with you, why you enjoy talking with me. You know, we we share these motivation systems, Neil, and other people that talk to us and, and share them, they'll, we know each other when we relate, yeah. you know, we feel that. And you know, it, it, it's, there's a, there's something, this is the evolutionary impulse coming through us. It feels sacred. It's something that is in the fabric of the universe to evolve to greater complexity. And with human beings, greater complexity is deeper consciousness, more compassion and more love. Okay, more care for more, more for all. It's just we feel it. We feel it in each other and we feel it in ourselves. And we want to help other people feel it because it's such a great yeah. thing. Yeah, and, and I feel in this moment the presence of everyone listening who's here and is hopefully nodding their head at this moment. Like, yeah, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm, I'm listening. And that's why I, I want to be a part of this conversation too. Yeah. God bless all of us. And thank you for listening. Yes. You know, thank you for, for sharing this with us and, and for growing and for contributing your development and your consciousness to all of us. Thank you. Keith, is there a, um, obviously we've recommended your books highly here. Is there a particular Ken Wilber book that you think is a good starting place for, for people whose interest is piqued by our conversation and who isn't already integrally informed? I think that the best place to start would be to get the Cosmic Consciousness audio tapes that Ken did with Tammy Simon, It Sounds mm. True. Because once you hear those tapes, there's 12 of them, and listening to those um, uh, most, more consistently than anything else has, has lit people up in terms of their understanding what this understanding of the universe as Ken Ken's called himself a map maker. Um, and, and it's not that map makers don't discover, don't create the territory. They, they, they draw maps that help us explore the territory. So you do that. That would be the first thing I'd recommend. Get the sounds true. Um, cosmic consciousness, K O S M I C consciousness. Now, after that, I recommend integral spirituality. Integral Spirituality is a wonderful book. The first time I met Ken was when I was on a, a podcast with him talking about one of those chapters. And he and I have since become friends. And, you know, he's, he's written blogs for my books, and, you know, like uh, plugs for my books and stuff. And we've interviewed, done various interviews with each other. But that's when I first met him. And, and that, that Integral Spirituality uh, book, if you, if you, if you, particularly if you've heard Cosmic Consciousness, it really takes you deeper into the cosmology. Um, at, a, at a particular point, you just understand the universe in a, in, a, in a different way, and particularly how consciousness exists in the universe, and particularly human consciousness, that, that changes you. It's a, in that sense, it's a psychoactive system. You learn the system, and you embody it, and, and you're, by definition, a different per person. You're, you have a larger perspective. Now, that doesn't solve all your problems, you know, and turn wine into water, water into wine or anything, but... <laughs> 
don't want to overpromise here. <laughs> I know that would be great, but it doesn't do that. As far as I know, maybe somebody else has turned water into wine. But that being said, um, that's what I'd recommend: cosmic consciousness first, and then if it was if I was advising, do the integral spirituality. Now, any of his books are are utterly fascinating. I haven't read all of them, but the ones I've read, every single one of them has been great because he knows that territory and describes it in ways that are surprisingly wonderful um, and very, to me, very applicable. That's why I wrote Waking Up. I, I, his stuff, to me at that point, hadn't been adequately applied to psychotherapy. I thought, well, I'll do that. <laughs> I was at a conference. They said the books haven't been written. I went home and wrote a book. <laughs> I, I, I dreamt about that material every day for over a year, and then I would wake up and I'd write the 400-page book. And I wrote, So I wrote a 400-page book and then sent it to a couple of the integral people and said, hey, what do you think? And they didn't even remember who I was. I mean, it was it was one of those real bizarre things. Um, uh, and, but you know that that kind of led me into the system and into meeting people and into my other books and and, and so on. Um, I find it enormously useful um, in understanding psychotherapy and everything else. In parenting, for instance, um, an integrally understanding of parenting makes, in my opinion, makes you a hugely better parent. Because it makes it makes the interiors of your child and the worldviews of your child way way more visible, and gives you direction about how to guide your child to more fully occupy their current worldview, and then give them little hints about going to the next one. Because you got to you can't skip worldviews; you have to go from one to the other. It helps you with sexuality. It helps you with your physical health. It helps you um, in your interface with culture. Keith, you know, it helps Keith, you in your. You're world. getting into water into wine territory here. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Get a little evangelical here. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. I'm not that. It's not for everybody. If you don't like integral, that's fine. You can grow. You can transcend. I have no problem. I'll love you just as much if you hate integral. No problem. Just saying. Just because I love it. It's like Caressa and you. Just because you love it doesn't mean that's everybody right, has That's right. Well, Keith, it is always a pleasure to have you here on the show. Uh, love your spirit, your wisdom, and your willingness to, to, uh, to go there despite how it might irritate people. Not that we've ha- not that we yeah. had that much of that here, and uh, and yeah. as you mentioned, it's just always great to connect with you uh, for the podcast. So thank you so much for your time and enthusiasm today. Well, thank you for having me on again. It's really a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.